Hello man fans, Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Uh, lots of you getting in touch following my interview last week with the Brown Signs Lady and my trip to the Pinball Hall of Fame. Uh, there's a post at facebook.com slash Ollie Man. Uh, you've been getting in touch to tell me your unconventional travel tips. Uh, Roxanne says, me and my partner visited a labyrinth under a castle in Budapest that contained mannequins in cages dressed in period costume whilst opera played over speakers. There was no explanation. <laughs> uh, Chester says, I spent my birthday at Portreath B Centre. It was amazing. Uh, and Jude uh, says, I'd recommend the Torture Museum in Holland and the Medical Sciences Museum in Bangkok. Both fascinating, she says, but not very cheerful places. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, we here at The Modern Man, of course, are relentlessly cheerful and sporadically fascinating. Hopefully today's episode is both. I'm going to be talking to one of Britain's top stuntmen. He was involved in one of the most iconic stunts of all time. Uh, and this week's Foxhole features uh, an exceptionally intricate nighttime tale. I think you will enjoy it. Uh, on today's show, you will also learn what a waste not workshop is. You'll learn just how much work you need to put in to truly benefit from a polyester foreskin. And you'll learn what the biggest killer is in the Swiss town of Lauterbrunnen. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man, Tom Cruise won't go through glass. Because his face is his money. Lifting the curtain on life as a Hollywood stunt double. If you're very excited yeah. with this hot Italian woman, then, you know, that's, yeah. that's fair enough. And Alex Fox advises a listener still reeling from a night to remember. But first, it's the man that brings the end to trends. It's Ollie Peart with the Zeitgeist. Hey, Ollie. Hello, Ollie. How are you? Yeah, not bad, thanks. You, you know. look great. <laughs> I do. We're sitting on a roof terrace for this week's edition, and uh, it is December, so I'm not wearing what I was when we recorded in Lisbon by any means. No. So tell us, Ollie, what are the big trends of the week? Dick holes. I will set the scene. You're on the train, mm -hmm. busting for a slash. You peer up towards the toilet, and you notice that the engaged light is off. This is your moment, Ollie. You go into the loo. Mm. You're wobbling about. And you grab onto the side. Now, do you go over the fence or through the hole? Oh, wow. Always through the hole. Always through the hole. Always that through is the hole. interesting. I mean, nine-year-old boy. When do you go over the fence? Why oh, would you go over the fence? Dick holes are falling from popularity. You don't mean the urethra, because that is still very popular as far as I can tell. 75% of pants sold still have the dick hole the, the benefit of uh, American listeners we're talking about underpants here underpants mm -hmm. we're talking about kegs mm -hmm. what do they call them in American then underpants underpants yeah. do they yeah but the pants are trousers aren't they oh yeah yeah, yeah. sort it out America but uh, the, the trend is sort of moving more towards the, the supportive style pants yeah. where you don't have the dick hole and the reasons given according to complex.com is that men are opting for more performance inspired clothing so basically they want pants that they can wear in the office right and then they can just go to the gym and they don't have to change pants now well, I don't know about you well, I've never changed pants to go to the gym anyway I don't go to the gym but you know what I mean do you have multiple types of pants for different I activities I, really, I mean the, 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 the thing that makes me nervous about this slot very often Ollie is it's kind of literally the first thing that new listeners to the show hear <laughs> after my introduction I don't know if I really want to plunge people straight into my penile health but um i have changed pants to go to the gym yes not because my work pants were dirty mm. but because my gym pants will become sweaty and i don't then want to carry on wearing those afterwards as going out pants so right, i just okay. isolate and have gym pants i mean i think that's a sensible move yeah but if you had a pair of pants that you were say working in all day yeah. so they're not sweaty because you, your job's not a very active job this like is my mine, job right yeah sitting you just outside sit down wrapped up in wool exactly yeah so you turn up to the gym you don't have to change your pants so you do your gym stuff in the pants then you take them off and then change your pants fine okay i mean and what's it got to do with dick holes if pants have dick holes they're less supportive for your your stuff, your junk. So the theory goes that if you're running on a treadmill, mm. you don't want your, yeah, your, your schlong around. to fall out of your yeah, hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But uh, somebody else on that site says that it's also down to the fact that we love technology so much, so we like having a one-handed piss so that we can use our phone in one hand and piss yeah. in the other. Have you ever done that? I, I'm afraid I do that constantly. No! That's I go, disgusting! I go as I was far to you... say almost every time I urinate, I'm also checking my out replies. 
it's just multitasking. I know it's depressing, and you think, well, why can't you just separate yourself off from the four-dimensional world for the time you're urinating? But, but to me, it feels productive. But you say you use the gate every time, though, right? Every time. Yeah, so this guy's suggesting that uh, the reason people want to not have the hole... Mm is so they can use their mobile phone because you need two hands to get your dick out of the hole. So you're like some kind of weird multitasking freak, according to him. Why do you need two hands? You don't him. need two hands to get your dick out of the hole. You just need one. Undo the fly, get it out. What's the problem? That hand is the is the dick hand, the other hand's the phone hand. I'm just trying to sort of... It's not complicated to imagine this, Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> you're holding a microphone in one hand and your phone in the other now. Imagine the microphone is your cock. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, but you have... Like, okay, I'm checking messages on this hand. Yeah. Okay, and then I... Can I... It's, it's much easier to go over the top in this instance. What else have you got for us this week? Tim will fix it. Oh, okay. A, even a pun on Savile feels wrong, but go ahead. Who's Tim, you ask? Tim is Joe. The average Joe, Ollie. What? Because it sounds like Jim. This isn't about a guy called Tim? No, it's nothing to do with Tim. It's to do with fix-it culture. <laughs> We're moving into a fix-it era, where it has become taboo to throw things into landfill, Ollie. No, it hasn't. It, it I wish it had. Blooming well hats. It hasn't. Look at the amount people just go to a coffee shop, have one coffee once in one of those cups that's got a plastic lid and throw it away. Yeah, that'll all change. Will it? Yes. Okay. It, not, not necessarily no, you because you said it commandingly, I believe you. Yeah. Carry I think, on. I think it will change because it kind of has to. But I'm talking more about, say, your toaster breaks. Rather than throwing it away and getting a new one from Argos, you learn how to fix it. No, I don't. I get a new one from Argos. But anyway, go ahead. And I'll tell you why it'll change, right? Right. So last week there was a show on the BBC called The Big Life Fix with mm-hmm. Simon Reeve, everybody's favourite travel man. The The premise of the show is that they have... There's three really big problems. They're quite serious ones. So one of them is a Welsh village that doesn't have a phone or internet network. The other one's a disabled uh, kid who, who loves taking photos, but his disability means he can't use his camera anymore. It's sort of a degenerative... It's a ge- degenerative. <laughs> it's a de- how do you particularly say it? funny because you're stumbling over something so serious. Yes, a degenerative disease. Yeah. It's yes. a degenerative. <laughs> Let's just keep the I'm fumble in. I'm the fact that you can't say that. Okay, I can't say. Yeah, it's a bad disease yeah, sure. that gets worse, and he can't use his camera. And then there was a lady who has. Uh, she's only 33, and she's got Parkinson's, and she's a graphic designer, so she finds it really difficult to draw and write and those mm-hmm. kinds of things. So these people, they're like modern-day life hackers. They use things like 3D printers, Arduinos, which are like mini-computers and this kind of stuff, to build things on, like, really tight budgets to fix these major problems. And the Mm. most outstanding one was the woman fixing the lady with Parkinson's. Pretty much. I say fixing. It means she can now draw and write. Okay, I just don't see how you draw a line between helping someone who has a crippling degenerative disease be able to live a more productive life and throwing away a toaster. Because the reason that these people are able to do these things is, is there's because of 3D printers and all these amazing like little miniature computers and stuff, it's democratised being able to make stuff. So if you <sighs> want to build... It, it yeah, has. It's spin, Ollie. No one's got a 3D printer. Yeah, but you can get them for a couple of hundred quid. Yeah, but and no one's got cheap. one. Only nerds have got them. And they get, they're not very good at explaining what they're for, apart from they say things like, oh, one day we'll be able to build you a kidney. It's but like, that, yeah, but at the moment, you can just do a 3D printout of my face on some silicon and I don't want it. But that's what I think's changing. I think people are really interested. Uh, have you heard of Waste Not Workshops? No. So you go along, there's experts there, the nerds with the 3D printers. Yeah. You go along with your toaster and they go, oh, well, this is how you fix it. And then you learn. So okay. it's sort of... A really cool thing that's happening. And in Sweden, they've cut taxes for companies that fix stuff rather than throw it away. And finally, Ollie Pitt, what else have you got for us this week? Ugly food. This goes exactly counter to what you said, I think, only in week one of this series, which was that because of Instagram, <laughs> everyone's having good-looking food. I completely forgot about that, yeah. <laughs> Although this ugly food could potentially look really amazing. So ugly food is actually a book that has just come out oh, uh, the it's authors, a toilet book is it it's a what it's a Christmas toilet book isn't it ugly food I can see it you no know. it's a legitimate yeah yeah but it's like 10 things to do with cats or 10 life hacks you can do on the moon it's it's a book you read whilst you crap isn't it yeah maybe and you're well when you're reading it you're crapping out ox cheek chicken feet pig strotters and uh, rabbit ears. Oh, I see. So this sort of weirdly links in with your last trend, doesn't it? In the sense that this is people using bits of animals that previously were not particularly uh, keen on because they're ugly. Exactly. The two guys that wrote it, they basically say that, look, these are cheap cuts of meat, but they're really tasty and you can make amazing meals with them, Uh. like gourmet-type food. And it's just 
breaking that sort of mental barrier that stops you from noshing on a uh, pig's trotter. Mm. Would you nosh on a pig's trotter? I mean, I'm from a dynasty of kosher butchers, so I probably shouldn't be on the record saying yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I've noticed that there are levels of acceptability that the Chinese, for example, bring to animal body parts that I don't think we'll ever be able to reach in the West. If you go to a Chinese supermarket, you can get a pig's uterus for your freezer. Yeah. I'm sure that tastes nice in a soup, but it is called pig's uterus. I just can't imagine picking it up from the freezer aisle in Tesco. But guess what? I've turned it into a game. Great. I'll call this game Hairy Berry. Yep. And what you've got to do is you've got to guess mm-hmm. which of these are real ugly foods yep. and which ones I've made up. Okay, you ready? Yes. Mangle Wurzel Beet. It's a type of uh, beetroot. Mangle Wurzel Beet. I think the tribute to Gummidge is authentic. I'm saying real. <sighs> Good work. Yes, it is. Uh, and it looks like, I mean, Google it, by all means, everybody, uh, it, but it looks like a man with multiple growths on his face. It, it looks like John Pertwee in Where's the Gummage. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. suppose it does, yeah. Next, spiced squirrel popcorn. Well, that's not using meat that we otherwise throw away. No one eats squirrel, so I think you've made that up. That's real. Yeah, it's a sort of firebox. <laughs> a fun gift for Christmas thing, isn't it, that no one actually eats. Do you want to quickly know what's in it? Yeah. Okay, there's two squirrels, yep. 15 millilitres of soy sauce, flour, oil, and for seasoning you need fennel seeds, allspice, mace, and uh, some sea salt. Next, Jeffrey's beard. Type uh, of fungus that grows in forests in the UK. Real. Fake. Oh. Deep fried rabbit ears. Um, yeah, that sounds like something that um, Hugh Fendi Whittingstall would do. That is real. Mashed chicken brain. Um, yes, I think Chinese restaurants, yes. Fake. Okay. Although when I wrote well, it, I do I think bet that you some, can get yeah, some of you yeah. probably does. <laughs> and last one, yeah. vixen tit. What? Vixen tit. Vixen tit? Or teat. Vixen teat. The teat of a vixen. Fox. I mean, you have to explain it, so I'm saying you've made it up. Yeah, that's fake. Yeah, I knew you it. You wouldn't need that. Yeah. That's disgusting. Um, Ollie, it's been a pleasure. If people want to get in touch with the trend for next week's show, what should they do? At The Modern Man on Twitter. Yeah. And... Uh, by any other means they feel appropriate. Yeah, whatever they fancy. Bye. Bye. Uh, Before we find out what your challenge is for next month, let's pause to thank our sponsors for the Zeitgeist this month, BBC Maestro. Yes, BBC Maestro is a subscription-based streaming platform. It's got loads of amazing online courses that you can take part in, which are taught by some really incredible names. Yeah, like Alan Moore, Julia Donaldson. It's an incredible repository of online video lessons from people who really know what they're talking about. Um, I'm really excited because Bill Lawrence is on there. Do you know who that is? I don't. Should I know this? He's a, well, no, it's a geeky thing to know who he is, but okay. he's, a, he's a comedy writer. Mm. And he's done an online course for BBC Maestro in writing comedy for television. He's the guy behind Scrubs and Ted Lasso. The thing about these courses is they're long. Like, he's, it's not just guy talks to camera for half an hour and shares some tips that you'd get if you went to go and see them speaking at any literary event. He has done a bespoke 21-lesson, four-and-a-half-hour course on how to write comedy for TV, how to pitch, how to work with actors, how to find your voice. I mean, they're proper deep dives. The one that really stood out for me, though, is... Um Brian Cox teaching acting. and mm. I, I don't think I've ever said this to you, Ollie. But I remind you of Brian Cox? You, you're... I do have that steely determination. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's say yeah. But I have always wanted to learn how to act properly. I don't necessarily want to be an actor, but I just quite like the idea of um, knowing how to act. And the thing about Brian Cox is, I mean, what a name to be teaching you something like yeah. acting. Well, there'd be transferable skills, wouldn't there? Even if you have no intention of being an actor, you know, the the things that he's going to be talking about in that course, how to work with other actors, how to interpret your character, how to learn your lines, all of that stuff might be relevant for whatever you do for a job. Yeah, I was thinking more of explaining to my other half that I did put the clothes away. She just thinks that I didn't, but then I could act the way that I did. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, maybe you will make that pivot, Ollie. You know, there's there's always roles for the back half of the calf in uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. You're saying I'd be <laughs> a literal ass. Anyway, uh, if this appeals to you as it should, 
then use the code MAN to get 40% off your favourite video course or 40% off a subscription at bbcmaestro.com. Yes, go to bbcmaestro.com and use the code M-A-N-N to get your 40% off your favourite video course or 40% off a subscription, which gives you access to every single BBC Maestro course. Let the greatest be your teacher with BBC Maestro. Now, stunt performers. Rarely people you hear from in the media. Most of us, even movie fans, can't name our favourite stuntman. There's no Academy Award for stunts. It's as if... Hollywood wants to play down the existence of the stunt double for fear of highlighting the artifice that obviously exists when our favourite action sequences are committed to film. Well, I wanted to know more about stunt work, so I met up with Gary Connery, whose stunt credits include huge franchises like Harry Potter, uh, Sherlock Holmes and Indiana Jones. He also holds the record for being the only person to have jumped from a helicopter without a parachute using only a wingsuit to see him safely reach the ground after a vertical journey of 2,400 feet. But it's for another helicopter stunt that he's truly gone down in the history books. He was the man who stunt doubled for Queen Elizabeth II during the opening ceremony of the 2012 London Olympic Games, jumping from that helicopter to enter the stadium. Gary had previously worked with director Danny Boyle on his movie The Beach, but I had to wonder, what did he think when the director first suggested to him that he should jump out of a helicopter dressed as the Queen in a live broadcast all around the world? Honestly, I thought, well, this isn't going to happen. Mm. I've been asked on so many different occasions by different people, different groups, to do something. And they don't that often come off. So I had to go and have a meeting with Sebco and a bunch of other people to basically convince them that this could happen. I think we did five nighttime rehearsals at the stadium. And we'd also done probably another five jumps at a couple of drop zones, skydiving centres. Um, one in Swindon and one in Hinton uh, near Silverstone. We'd done some rehearsals there and sort of mocked up with cones a kind of area that we would land and relative heights and everything else. But the people who are running the show, they know supposedly when I'm supposed to be jumping in. It was supposed to be 9.23, I think, but I think we were a couple of minutes late because of the fact that the other parts were running late. So we were bang on cue. You're making it sound like you're all completely relaxed. I mean, surely you must have been shitting yourself a bit then. Not for the danger of the stunt necessarily, just for the massive global audience. Yeah, but that's the thing. Unfortunately, I missed the occasion. My job was to go out of the helicopter on a cue from the guy who was our jump master, Dave Emerson, and he was supposed to count down from 10. But because of the chain of command and it coming through to us, I was looking at him in the door. Imagine the door wide open, the blades are going, there's a shitload of noise. <laughs> and I'm looking at him, waiting for that cue, knowing it's coming very soon. We could see into the stadium the big screens that were playing the pre-record mm. of the the little thing that they called Happy and Glorious. Which was where, Daniel Craig meeting. Yeah, where the Queen you know, gets in the helicopter after meeting Daniel Craig in her room and the corgis rolling over and they get in the helicopter and fly across Had London. you seen that before? Yeah. Right. But as it was, the chain of command came through and Dave's there and he's gone, three, two, and I've gone, oh, shit. <laughs> and out we went. So, you know, it, it was all on cue. Did you um, think you'd pulled it off? Yeah. Yeah, so going back to your original question of... Were you shitting yourself? No, but I wanted to get the job right. Yeah. Because the Olympics, it's one hit. So get it right. So you block everything else out. Ultimately, all I was doing was what I'd done several times prior because we did rehearse, albeit we just didn't have the Queen walking in. I mean, it's possibly the most famous live stunt of my lifetime. Great. It's got that iconic thing attached to it, hasn't it? And strangely enough, my son, where he used to go to school, I keep in touch with his teacher. And Steve tells me that part of the school curriculum and about how the royal family are perceived now was partly due to the Olympics and what happened there. 
and how the Queen kind of accepted this thing of how she arrives and how that changed people's views. Yeah, because it, on the one hand, it made it look like the monarchy were up for a bit of a laugh and playing along. But on the other hand, there was an element of her being slightly ridiculed because you had the breaches, right? I wonder to what extent she gave permission for that. Gave permission for what? Well, the shot that people saw was the Queen's pantaloons for a good few seconds. Were you aware that that's what people would be seeing when you jumped? No, I had no idea. But also, the Queen wouldn't have been wearing those. Well, no. They were designed for me to wear as kind of leggings because they knew that the skirt's going to wave up. I just wonder if the Queen knew that when she said Well, hey, do you know what? I mean, I, I actually am not that aware of the press jumping on that so much, you know? Oh, no, but I think it's been um, really positive. I can just imagine trying to get through the royal protocol to get consent for that. It's one thing to do a funny scene with Daniel Craig. It's another thing to say, and the whole world's going to see your pants, ma'am. Yeah. It's actually worked out really well for her, but, <laughs> you know, that's you've done that. <laughs> well, not intentionally. I, well, I don't know if there's a Wikipedia article, you know, list of people who have played the Queen, but you should be in it. Well, I guess I am... The only person who has, well, I know I am the only person who has, and I'm pretty confident I'm the only person who will ever actually double her. You know, you get Helen Mirren pretending to be her. Mm. You get, uh, the. there's a new show out now, isn't there? The Crown. On Netflix, The Crown. Yeah. So you've got that actress pretending to be her, but I was her stunt double. She's only ever had one acting role. That was it. <laughs> She's not going to do another acting role and need a stunt double. No. So, yeah, that's a nice claim to fame, I suppose. And you've worked in a whole load of films with a whole load of directors. Have there been things that people have asked you to do that you've just said, that's not possible, I can't do that? Often. A writer will sit down and write a few words that when they're writing it, it sounds great. The guy comes falling out of the window and hits the floor and just as a truck is passing and da-da-da-da, whatever it is, whatever the scenario is. Very easy to write, very different to then visualise that and bring it to life on screen. So, yes, sometimes you don't do what they're asking you to do, but not necessarily for the reason of a fear thing. I've never pulled out of something through fear. I've certainly been scared in jobs. What is an example of a job you've done we might have seen on screen where you were actually scared doing it? Luther, Mm -hmm. which is Idris Elba um, playing the part of John Luther. I did the first stunt on the very first episode of the first series. And people can find it if you go on Google and look up Madsen Fall Luther episode one, for example, it will come up. This guy is running from John Luther. John Luther is being introduced to the viewers in this scene. And he goes into this derelict building chasing this guy and they get to a gantry. And this gantry is over a three story high hole. And the three story high hole was created as a result of it being an old brewery. And the massive hopper, three-storey high hopper, was removed. So what you've ended up with is a narrow hole with a load of pipes and metalwork and metal collars and brick walls and what have you to sort of hit on the way down. Mm. And the idea being they get to this gantry, the door's locked, Madsen can't get out, he comes and swings a bar at Luther, the platform collapses and he ends up hanging And ultimately, Luther kind of lets him go and he falls to his death. Mm. So that is something that no one's ever done before because of the location and what it lent itself to being able to do. And because it was so narrow, if any of my limbs had gone out left, right, backwards, whatever, they would have been taken out or severely damaged on some of the pipework and metalwork. When you're up the top looking down, there was an obvious hole, but you had to be right and because of the fact that i was hanging here looking up at luther and i had to let go it becomes a a fall with without vision Mm. so you just have to trust yourself and no way of practicing it really no way of practicing it the first time you do it is the first time you do it how many times did you do it so all of the pipe work was 
above a certain height. So I just did the fall once, but below the pipework, just to see that when I let go, I stayed plumb so that I fell, you know, without any rocking because it's very difficult actually, believe it or not, just to let go and stay plumb because naturally your body starts to move. Mm. So I had to do that from a lower height. But then, yeah, the first time you fall through that pipework is the first time. So shoot it because shoot it. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, isn't it? I think the casual viewer thinks, oh, well, there's obviously a crash mat at the bottom. They don't think at any moment on the way down you could lose an arm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there were there were boxes at the bottom. I, f- I fell into cardboard boxes because there was no way of getting anything else in there. there was, you couldn't fit an airbag. And airbags work on air dissipating from, yeah. from the sides. And because it was in such a tight sort of box space at the bottom, there was nowhere for the air to go anyway. So would you have done that or a stunt like that if there'd been any doubt in your mind that you could achieve it? No. So no, you felt confident you could? Sure, but there's still the element of fear. And I think, I mean, fear in my job, I believe, is a great state of mind. Paranoia is a great state of mind because it keeps you focused and it keeps you thinking. So I fly wingsuits, but every time I'm stood on the edge of a cliff about to jump off and fly, I have this fear. And that sets in motion my own checklist for myself before I jump. And if anything's wrong, I don't jump. What is the most fun thing that you do? Hang out doing podcasts. <laughs> well, the most dangerous of all activities, of course. You see, now you've, now you've used the word dangerous, so we're going to have to talk about that. What is dangerous? You're asking me? Yeah. What is dangerous? Okay, but if you're about to say every time I cross the street, every time I get on a bus, it's no, dangerous. No, I'm not. Okay. I'm asking you, Fine. what is dangerous? I'd say what is dangerous is like jumping through a burning ring of fire or riding a motorbike over a bridge or all of the shit that you do. <laughs> that is dangerous. That's why I'm here to talk to you about it. But what if someone doesn't get hurt doing that? Is it still dangerous? Things are only dangerous if they hurt you. So we go through life every day doing what we perceive to be safe things because everybody does it. So it becomes an acceptable thing. But we don't even think about it. If people think that I don't think about what they perceive to be dangerous before I go and do it, then they're all bonkers. I have very calculated method and I think long and hard before I go and fall down the hole or before I go and jump off a cliff. So it's all calculated. It's all considered. My biggest injury that I've ever sustained was playing non-stop cricket with young kids <laughs> because I wasn't thinking about it. So the whole dangerous thing is... If you were going to go and do that fall tomorrow, I don't know your background personally. So, I haven't so I'll assume that your background is holding microphones and, and interviewing people. Yeah. So let's assume you were going to go and do that fall tomorrow or jump off a cliff. I would probably perceive that as dangerous. Or at least the element of danger is higher for you than it would be for me. Mm. So it comes back to that. What is dangerous? And things are dangerous if they hurt you. You're still choosing, though, to work in an environment that is inherently more dangerous. And there's only so much you can control, isn't there? Do you know what the biggest killer in the mountains is? Go on. Mushroom picking. (laughs) And I know that because there was a report done by the mayor of Lauterbrunnen. Lauterbrunnen is a 2,000-foot vertically sided valley that people go to in switzerland to base jump it's a great ski area in the winter great jumping area in the summer and you know base jumping can cause deaths and there was a call by the locals to put a ban on base jumping because of the deaths that were occurring so the mayor thought well i need to look into this i need to have a look at what does kill people in our area and top of the list the biggest killer in the mountains is mushroom picking So he said, you know, if we're going to ban base jumping, we need to ban mushroom picking, need to ban paragliding, skiing, before base jumping. It's all about perception. It is all about perception, but part of your calculated risk is there's a possibility of fatality, which is something that most people don't think of every day. I get what you're saying. You wouldn't do it if you thought there was a reasonable chance that would happen. But what you're dealing with is a minimised risk that might happen, which is different to saying you don't perceive a risk at all. So how do you cope with that? How do you cope with the idea that this might be a thing that kills you when you're about to do it? Well, I don't consider that. 
no one stands on the edge and thinks to themselves, today could be the day. Mm. Pretty much the last thing I do on the edge is say to myself, okay, if you die today, what's the incident report going to read? Is it going to read that Gary did everything right with his parachute, his wingsuit was in good order, but he jumped in 27 mile an hour winds? What a dick. Is it going to read, Gary just chose not to open his parachute? Is it going to read, he left his parachute in a car overnight and it went to minus 10 and the damp within the parachute from the jump the day before froze the parachute to a block and when he went to deploy a block of ice came out and I say that because that's happened so you learn from other people's mistakes Mm. read instant reports and if I've gone through all of that I then have to make a pretty stupid mistake for it to be my day and you mentioned your son how would you feel as a parent about them doing the kind of thing that you've been doing So my son, he's now 20. He lived in Austria essentially full-time from around the age of 13 to 14, ski racing, because one of my backgrounds is ski racing. So I got him in skiing at a young age. At the age of 15, he lied about his age, said he was 16, went to Slovenia and did his accelerated freefall course, so went skydiving. As a parent? Come on, you, there must have been a part of you that was not happy about that. Oh, no, awesome. Really? Oh, God, yeah. Good lad. <sighs> Good lad. Something that frustrates me as just a sort of casual observer whenever a new Mission Impossible movie comes out is there's always this claim that Tom Cruise does his own stunts. Is that bullshit? He does a lot. He does a lot, actually. So it really um, is him strapped I, to the I side did, of a plane? Yeah, it was him. And he did That's it, I fucking think, nuts, isn't it? He did it seven or eight times. I mean, what he's worth and everything. Do you? But that's why he can do it because of what it's worth, what he's worth. So, a big part of people not doing their own stunts mm. is when the production company. There are lots of reasons people don't do their own stunts. Some of them is through capability. Some are the reason I'm going to tell you now. But a production company will invest a lot of money in the production and future locations that they've had to pay for. So if their star actor is damaged and they've paid out all this money, they're stuffed. Yeah. Tom Cruise is the money behind the film. It's his film. Mm. You know, very often he is the guy that's fronting the money to make the film. So ultimately it's his loss. Uh, I'm sure there's some more intricate, you know, lawyer talk that could go on about all of that. But that's how I understand it as a layman within the industry. Uh But Tom Cruise does a lot of his own stuff. So using him as an an example before probably wasn't a good example. But there are times when we're told on the publicity trail the actors did all their own stunts. What it really means is they did a couple of stunts, but basically they had stunt people. Yeah, there's a photograph in a book um, of me jumping from one rooftop to another on a show called Gormenghast, Mm -hmm. um, which is a fantasy drama thing of good few years ago now and the caption underneath is jonathan reese myers doing his own stunts Mm. and it was me tom cruise won't go through glass because his (laughs) face is his money but tom cruise does a lot how do you go through glass without damaging your face generally when you go through glass you go through detonated um toughened glass because that breaks into tiny little sort of square cubes so you'll end up with little nicks you can also put some, you know, protective gel on your face, which which can prevent it. But you try and cover up as much as possible. But yeah, toughened glass is what one goes through and the special effects will be there detonating it so that it shatters at the right point. Falling through the air is never going to hurt you. It's the impact that hurts. So the important part of a fall is what happens when you're just above impact. Mm. and which parts of your body you present to the impact point. Okay, Uh, so if someone listening to this happens to end up in a fight this evening and they get pushed off a cliff, how should they land? (laughs) In cardboard boxes. (laughs) In airbags, definitely land on your back. Boxes, you can pretty much get away with landing any which way, as long as you've got enough depth to them. Because boxes, literally just cardboard, single skin cardboard, very thin, very flexible. You land in them, they crush, the air dissipates. That creates a bed into the next box and the next one and the next one. And so you slowly decelerate. If you're falling from a plane, 
how many cardboard boxes deep do you need to absorb your fall? It's considered for every 10 feet up, you'd want one layer of boxes. Mm -hmm. But obviously that reaches an optimum. So, you know, if you were at 500 feet, you wouldn't need 50 layers because it reaches a point where that deceleration kicks in regardless. I would imagine, and I've kind of looked into this because I wanted to do a a mile high high fall, probably 40 feet in depth of cardboard boxes. So that's 20 layers. They must love you at Office Depot. (laughs) (laughs) Zeus packaging actually is Uh where I got my boxes for my wingsuit landing. Zeus packaging in Birmingham. Thanks, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Christmas is nearly here. And what have you got, the craft beer lover, in your life? A lady called Joe has tweeted me to imply I was being sexist last week when I suggested that you get your brother or your father-in-law a box of hand-picked craft beer for Christmas. She says, Oi, Ollie, sisters-in-law and mothers-in-law like craft beer too. Uh, Joe, you are absolutely right. Fair point. Let me be clear. Regardless of their genitals, if your friends or family enjoy their beer, they will love a box of craft beer from Beer 52. My Christmas box arrived last night. It's amazing. It's got festive specials from breweries like Rogue and Brewdog. And also included in every box is a free copy of Ferment magazine, which is this really cool, nicely printed, proper magazine all about the craft beer movement. Uh, And guess what? Just for listening to this drivel, you get 50% off. That means you can get a box of eight craft beers for 12 quid. Just visit beer52.com slash modern52. And for every one of you who takes up the offer, Beer 52 will send us some beer money as well. A box of eight craft beers for £12. That is a great Christmas present. Get it now. Beer52.com slash modern52. It's time to talk sex with Alex Fox. Hello, Alex Fox. Hello, beautiful Ollie. Before we jump into the foxhole, may I just thank you for bringing along peanut butter and jelly brownies to this particular recording? It's my absolute pleasure. I bet you never thought you'd get something called a brownie or anything involving jelly from me that wasn't a sex-related object. Yeah, not something that I'd actually willingly put in my mouth and enjoy. What have you been up to this week, Alex? Actually, I discovered something that pertains to a discussion that we've had in the foxhole in the past. How fortuitous. I'm part of a collective of women who are involved in sex tech, so technology that uh, helps to make people's sex lives better. Uh, And we have uh, little meetings and dinners now and again where we get together and chat with each other about our various projects. Uh, And while I was there, a woman from Canada told me about a product that's actually been uh, available over there since 1995. So it's, it's old in Canada, but it was news to me. Mm-hmm. And it's called The Manhood. It's a little polyester kind of sock that fits over the todger of circumcised men. Oh. And it is designed to help restore sensitivity in the glands, in the head of the penis, for guys who've been circumcised. Uh, And I know that we've had discussions in the past about what you can do uh, to either regenerate or regrow your your foreskin if you're a circumcised guy, or how you can increase sensitivity. And I hadn't heard of this before. So it's this uh, little pouch... It's double-walled. The fabric is uh, doubled over. And you're supposed to wear it pretty much day and night for at least 30 days. Ah, and because it... Uh, well, straight away I've encountered an issue there. Until then, I was quite interested because we, we've had this discussion before. As a circumcised man, I've never thought, oh, I'm really missing something here. Uh, you know, I've never thought, what sensation have I missed out on for all these years? But if there was a way I could sort of click my fingers, wave a magic wand, trying to think of a euphemism that doesn't sound like sex, if there was a thing I could do that would just make it suddenly feel like I was uncircumcised and I could see if there was a difference, that would be quite interesting. Going through the rigour of wearing something for days and nights on end doesn't feel like that solution to me. Well, it's not that dissimilar to just wearing a pair of pants. I mean, it's a little bit of fabric that you pop over. It's not painful and very long. Oh, you just pop it off to go to the toilet. You take it off. It's a bit of a commitment, isn't it? For some people, they'd see that as a very um, easy investment to make in return for massively increased sensitivity because it essentially acts like a fake foreskin by covering your penis almost all of the time. It means that sex can feel 
absolutely flabbergastingly different. But you take it off for the sex? Yes. Essentially, you wear it all the times that, as a guy with a foreskin, your foreskin would be covering the end of your penis. So, in the same way that the foreskin retracts during sex, yes, you take the manhood off. Let's get on to this week's question, shall we? It is sponsored, as ever, by mycondom.com. Alex, tell us about them. They sell a huge variety of condoms and sachets of lube individually, so you can try all sorts of different types before investing in a whole load of them. Maybe it's a little bit late this year, but mm-hmm. something nice to try in the run-up to Christmas next year, perhaps, might be to make your other half a personalised advent calendar. So you get 25 envelopes uh, numbered. You can put a, a saucy message or a photograph of yourself in each one, um, along with a different lube sachet or condom to try so it encourages you to do something different uh, in the run up to the big day on every single day in December well my sex life is evidently better (laughs) than yours Ollie (laughs) let's go with this week's listener question it is from PA who says Alex I'm writing to you regarding a recent dalliance I enjoyed with an Italian girl We met at a restaurant I was dining at with friends. She was working there as a waitress, spending some time in England to improve upon her language skills and broaden her horizons. I like the backstory here. This is more than we ever usually get, isn't it? She was working as a waitress (laughs) to improve her language skills. (laughs) Almost works. (laughs) Yeah. We flirted. I tried cracking jokes in my pub Italian. My friends and I ate and drank until closing time. As we were ushered out, she was waiting for me outside and accompanied me home. It's all sounding quite hopeful so far. Exactly, yeah. She was hot. Oh, she was hot. Enthusiastic, gymnastic, and moved in such ways and did such things. I'm I'm loving this. Uh, I'd never been so turned on, which is what I thought explained what was happening at the time. Aha! Now we get to the pant-based issue. Yeah. That and whatever brand of condom we used, she insisted that I wore the one she provided rather than my standard feather lights. Okay. I have never been so hard, nor so big, or red, hot, stiff, and veins bulging like an Olympic weightlifter's forehead. Vivid description, this, hasn't it? I've got a vision of, you know, do you remember the cartoon Ren and Stimpy? Yeah. Yeah, this this man's genitals sound a bit like the pulsing forehead vein in that. Attractive. When I came, after my usual nine or ten minutes, not a marathon, I know, don't judge me. Standard. It's probably slightly above average, isn't it, actually, for full on... If you're very excited yeah. with this hot Italian woman, then, you know, that's, yeah. that's fair enough. I rolled onto my back, expecting cuddles, maybe a glass of wine. But instead, that's where we get to the crux here, Alex. Instead, she straddles me, grabs my wrists, pins me gently, and carries on, unabated and unabashed. So he's still hard at this point. He's ejaculated but remained hard. Or yeah. She- okay. And he, at the point at which he'd normally say, right, done, off to bed... He says, it was quite uncomfortable, but my erection wasn't diminishing, and she seemed to be enjoying herself, so it seemed churlish to refuse. What a gentleman. Especially as she was doing all the work. After I don't know how long, but about the same again, it continued until she was eventually satiated, which must have been a couple of hours. Common, isn't it? The second time round, it's going to go a little bit longer. It can do for lots Um, of men, yes. A couple of hours is uh, fairly impressive. Thorough. Yeah. As we lay sticky, sweaty and all tangled up, it still took a while longer for my erection to decline to normal. No longer painful, but it was utterly numbed. Oh, so it was hurting him at some point then. It was was painful. Now it feels numbed. Yeah, I think what he was saying is there was pain, but there was also pleasure, so he sort of forgot about the pain for a bit. Uh, He continues, we had sex again in the morning, but I wasn't able to get as hard as I was the night before, and in fact, since then, I haven't been able to get as hard as I usually would, let alone that night, and I'm not lasting as long at all with anyone ever. She disappeared off that morning while I was in the shower. No note, no number left. I eventually went back to the restaurant a couple of weeks later and asked after her. The reception suddenly turned cold and I was informed that she had returned home to Italy. This is like the pilot for Wayward Pines, isn't it? Uh, There was no forwarding address and I should leave now. Thank you. So, Alex, I am worried. Do you think she spiked my drink with something? She had been serving all night. Does this happen often? And will I ever be fully functional again? Okay, um, there are a number of factors going on in this tale uh, that I'd like to pick out as possible explanations as to what happened. First of all, the chap writing to us says that 
the lady friend insisted on using her own condom mm. that she provided rather than his featherlight mm. that he that he carries at all times. Not necessarily unusual for a woman to insist on using her own condom. She might find it empowering to uh, provide her own. Uh, it might be one that she particularly likes the sensation of. Sure. Uh, if she's got an allergy, it might be one that's made of um, non, you know, it's a non-latex variant. Could be, or, or she might want the reassurance of knowing that it's one that's in date. Lots and lots of legitimate reasons. What I'm wondering, though, is whether she provided a condom that was a delay condom containing benzocaine. Mm. Very, it's usually about a 5% solution of very mild anaesthetic. But if this guy hadn't used that before, in some people it is possible for him to either feel like he's ejaculating or actually ejaculate and for that anaesthetic to have the effect of numbing his penis so that the, um, the usual feedback mechanisms, if you will, aren't as effective as they as they would be usually so if she'd used a condom that had delay lube in it that may have affected his sexual experience here just as a safety point it sounds like he came in a condom and then she got on top of him and they carried on having sex with the same condom you absolutely need to change condoms in between sex sessions in fact the official advice from the nhs is that even if you haven't ejaculated but you've been having sex for longer than half an hour you need to stop and change your condom because the friction over that time can actually cause it to wear down so uh, use a new condom every single time you have a new period of sex but it sounds like what he thinks happened is maybe something more sinister than that that she slipped him some sort of pill what could that be i mean viagra is what my mind leapt to well first up i agree with you entirely that sinister is the right adjective to use here even if you think you're doing somebody a favor if you think it's a fun thing if to you it's something that you use with partners all the time it is never ever okay to put drugs in somebody's drink or supply any kind of sexual stimulant without the explicit knowledge and consent of your partner. Right, but what do you think it might have been if she did do that? It could have been Viagra. The thing about Viagra is it's designed to work A, within half an hour, so this would have had to have been quite carefully timed. Although having said that, Viagra is designed to help get you hard when you are sexually stimulated so these days it's not that the drug is such that you don't just take it and automatically get a hard on within 30 to 60 minutes you usually do have to have some accompanying desire uh, although that doesn't sound like that was lacking in, no. in this situation however although viagra is designed to help you get hard and stay hard for the duration of sex until a man ejaculates it's not totally normal for viagra then to keep you hard for up to two hours after ejaculation and and to to allow you to keep going all that time in fact the makers of the original drug and all of the uh, all the other variants of it say that if you experience a hard-on that won't go away that's cause for concern and Mm. you should go and see your doctor there's also this thing that he says that it seems to have impacted him for weeks afterwards now that could actually just be that he had such an amazing night with this woman in every other way apart from feeling like he'd been drugged he had such an amazing night with this woman that actually everything else pales in to insignificance anyway and that's psychological i think that might be psychological i think it may be a combination of his positive recollections of how hot this was and he does say he was more turned on than ever before that she was one of the hottest women that he'd ever been with and also the more negative effects of stress and worry about what actually happened that night if you're anxious as a guy in fact if you're anxious as a woman it will have an effect on your sexual response so it may just be that the memory of that night is affecting him physically yes absolutely the other thing we haven't mentioned is that our guy does say he's been drinking that night now drink has all sorts of effects on your libido your ability to perform and your openness to sex yeah um if he is usually someone that's a bit more nervous about sex but that night the the combined effects of being relaxed by drink and really turned on by this girl meant that he was more open and excited than ever before uh, although alcohol can make it more difficult to get an erection if you're really excited because you're more chilled out because you're a bit boozed up 
that could have had an effect on how the night went for him. It would also perhaps explain why he found it difficult to get hard on the morning after because he had a flipping hangover and a one a bangover, if yes. you will. <laughs> but it doesn't account for why everyone in the restaurant pretended she didn't work there anymore. That does sound like there's something more to the story, which I find personally interesting, but perhaps not something that's directly sex related. It's intriguing. It it's is. not something I can explain. Maybe you were so amazing in the sack PA that she simply had to leave London at that point because it was mission accomplished. <laughs> Missionary uh, accomplished. <laughs> and all of the other positions. As I say, we only know half the story. Do let us know what happened next, just for my own satisfaction, as much as anything else. If you have a question for a future edition of The Foxhole, Alex is always open. If you meander over to our website, which is modernman.co.uk, and that's man with two N's, not one, uh, click on feedback and ask me your cue. Thanks also to mycondom.com. Remember, you can get 15% off using our special offer code. Foxhole, F-O-X-H-O-L-E. Well, that's nearly it for this week's Modern Man. Big thanks to everyone who's been buying us beer. Uh, What's been amazing is not only those of you that have been donating monthly contributions to help us make this show, or at least help us buy some lunch whilst we're recording. What's been amazing is a handful of you have taken the opportunity to pledge larger amounts. The form on our website allows you to do that if you want to donate lump sum like 25 quid 50 quid thank you to those of you who have done that that's incredible if you think this show is worth you handing over the price of one beer a month three pounds 31 just visit modernman and click beer money thank you right music time now our theme is by django django they're currently working on new stuff so stay tuned for that we will bring it to you uh, and coming up now is our top new winter tune it is called apricity it's by sid arthur and it's out now on communion records i've been ollie mann the producer matt hill and for our annual christmas spectacular we'll see you next tuesday